I'm Graham Mack and welcome to the Pod 20, the countdown of the most popular podcasts right now, according to downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. I'll be talking to podcasters that made the chart and you'll hear about an exciting new sex position. The Pod 20 is heard on podcast radio, on DAB in the UK, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. Into the chart now, and at number 20, counterclock. To tell the story of a crime, you have to turn back time. At 19, behind the bastards. Cliff notes on the worst humans in history. 18, The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show with DJ Envy, Angela Yee and Chalamagne, the God. 17, Folk on Foot, the folk music podcast. One of the people behind it is Owen Ralph. Congratulations on your success at the British Podcast Awards. Yeah, we got a a nomination for that one. It was um, for Best Lockdown Podcast, which, fingers crossed, that's the last time that category is going to come up. Um... But yeah, and that was specifically for the uh, Folk on Foot festivals that we did, which were these kind of uh, seven hour long uh, streams, which we, we put on the podcast, but also on YouTube of um, musicians largely playing from home uh, during the various lockdowns we've had. Um, and yeah, the whole idea of those was to uh, raise money for half went to the performers and half went to the charity Help Musicians. Um, and yeah, we did four of those over the kind of the time that we were locked down and raised um, is three hundred and twenty something thousand pounds. I should share. Nice one. No, that's good. That is that's a hell of a three hundred and thousand. Yeah, yeah, three three hundred and twenty thousand pounds. Goodness me, that's a lot of money out of four podcasts. Wow. Yeah, well, it was um, we when we were first coming up with the idea of the first one, Matthew, who Matthew Bannister who presents the podcast. He, he initially wanted to set the, the target at 5,000. And I said, that's that's too high. We should really set it at 2,000. Otherwise, <laughs> this is going to look really bad if we don't hit it. And then, yeah, that, that first one got to 100,000. Well done. Folk on Foot, number 17 this week on the Pod 20. 16, the Jordan B. Peterson podcast, enlightening discourse that will change the way you think. 15. On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Fascinating conversations with the most insightful people in the world. At 14. Something Was Wrong. The Iris Award-winning true crime docuseries about the discovery, trauma and recovery from shocking life events and abusive relationships. 13. Monday Morning Podcast. Bill Burr rants about red rocks, supersonic flights and honeymoons. Number 12, Soap from the Box with Lee Salisbury. Lee, you've directed most of the big soaps, including EastEnders and Emmerdale. How do you get the best performance out of the actors? I think it is just them trusting you, you know, you understanding them. And if they think you are good, they think you're good. And that's the thing. You can't really teach that, I don't think. You know, you have to listen to them. It's so hard to say because you just have to, you have to go in and make them trust you because they're like, who are you coming into this soap? So you have to know what you're talking about. And again, you know, luckily, I think I've got that. You know, I do my homework. You do all the homework of the scenes, who they are, where they've been before, what the story is. You have to know your stuff. And obviously, when you direct soap, you kind of go in for a few episodes. Then you have a break to prep. So by the time you do the next episodes, it's about six weeks ahead story-wise. So suddenly it's like another show. Right. You know, you have to catch up. So, yeah, and stunts, you know, stunts, so much planning with stunts to make them look good. And that, you know, that's a whole different ball game. So, I mean, the Queen Vic fire was the first EastEnders I did. So we blew up the Queen Vic. 
Wow. Yeah, they rebuilt the whole studio in George Lucas Studios so we could burn it down. So the pressure then was like, oh, my God, this is a lot of pressure on me. But I love that. I thrive off that. So it was amazing. I mean, that was incredible doing that. Yeah. So quite literally a baptism of fire, eh, then? Yeah, and you can't really learn to do that. You don't learn how to burn a pub town. So you just, (laughs) I mean, my thing for that was whenever I watched fires, I always thought, you know, people are standing around in fire for too long. When a fire happens, I watch real videos. It's so quick. So I wanted to make it so manic and quick. And so, yeah, I put a lot of work into that to try to make it as realistic as you can for a soap, because obviously you need the drama. You need people nearly caught and escaping in real life you'd all be gone you know yeah, but yeah. i tried to make it as realistic as possible and I, for that episode i wanted to make it about the pub because i thought the pub is a character the queen vic is a character yeah and i think it worked it was brilliant the energy on set when we did that was incredible you know yeah. it was incredible yeah i spoke to sean williamson on this show and he loved every minute of his time at uh at East yeah Anderson. all the same it's like it is a family it sounds so cliche but it really is yeah. you know because you're there all day you're there Longer than you are with your family, you know, so you become a family. You really do. And have you ever had to deal with actors with diva behavior? Oh, yes. Yeah, quite a few. But I can never name names. I've never named names. You know, you just deal with that. It's like normal work, isn't it? We've, we've all worked with people that can be a pain. So nothing really major at all. You know, just it's well, more without, with- without naming names. Can you can you give us an example of what you had to deal with and how you sorted it out? Oh, no, I mean, it's it's just really weird. You know, that uh, actors will hate other actors on set, for instance. Oh, really? You know? So you're dealing like it's at school. You know, you're you're the in-betweener. So I've done scenes where I've had to kind of, they're like, is so-and-so going to say that? So I'm the person going, they said, will you say, yeah. So it can be very weird, but you well, know. they're you not just, talking to each other and you have to be I've the in-between. That, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. The go-between, yeah. The go-between. So I've had nothing really bad. It's just the atmosphere could be weird if you have someone on set. I mean, you know, on my podcast, Sue Johnson, the legendary Sue Johnson, said about Maggie Smith, she's amazing, but there's an atmosphere. So she creates the atmosphere on the set, which Sue doesn't really understand. So, you know, not that she's horrible, but again, you're just dealing with very different personalities, you know, and people, some people, you know, you know, Barbara Windsor was one of the best. She was lovely. She's trodden the board. She's done everything. So she was always... You know, you've got people who don't know their lines. You sometimes, really? you know, it's just a mixture. But I've had nothing kind of like major. But, you know, being on set when you know they hate them and there's been, obviously, it's like work. You know, you know, they might have had a bit of a thing with them and now they're not having a thing. And so you've got all the personal stuff going on in real life, obviously. But then, you know, they're on set being actors. They're all very professional and get on with it. But, of course, there's little bits of atmosphere that you you kind of have to be the one that oversees it and just, I like, compared it to being a headmaster. You just have to kind of get it going. <laughs> well, you got soap from the box going. It's at number 12 this week on the pod 20. 11, sips, suds and smokes. Everything good in life is worth discussing. Wine, tea, coffee, whiskey, beer, cigars, barbecue, people whose first names start with Q, ex-Amish, the state of Alabama, roadkill and Canadians. Number 10. American Vigilante, the podcast about KC, a bloke who could save your life, but end it too. This one is hosted by former Pod 20 guest Sam Walker. Nine, Freakonomics Radio, discover the hidden side of everything with Stephen J. Dubner, co-author of the Freakonomics books. Eight, Hidden Brain, Shankar Vedantam uses science and storytelling to reveal the unconscious patterns that drive human behaviour. 7. Feel Better, Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. 
health experts and personalities offer health life hacks. 6. Build it with Andy Stevens. Andy, I worked on a construction site for three years, and because of lockdown, a lot more people from different walks of life have been working in the building game, haven't they? There's an awful lot of people, you know, musicians in orchestras, singers in, in the, the musicals. They've had to work elsewhere, and some of them are now staying in it. There's a, I can't remember his name, but he was one of the lead parts in one of the musicals. Um, now training Carpenter, I think. Doesn't yeah. want to go back. Doesn't um, want to go back, wants to stay as a, no, as a chippy, yeah? Yeah, you know, it's, um, I think I think we, we will have a shift, but we've just got to get perception changed in schools because I always look at youngsters when they start school. What do they all do in reception? Make things with their hands. Yeah, they do. born into us. As uh, soon as a bit of toilet roll, one, a yogurt carton, and it's a rocket. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the old toilet rolls and cardboard boxes and bits of old, drainage and downpipe but that's that's what we do yeah and then it's drummed out of you because you're stuck in front of computers yeah and tell me about the consultancy that you run where you, where you help people get off the ground well again i didn't it's bizarre i didn't actually have much of a choice in that so i would stand on the stage at the nec excel center any of those doing the talk so work with kevin mcleod at grand designs and obviously very good architecturally in design. Is he all right? Because I see him on the TV and I think, I wonder what he's really like. Because sometimes he looks like he could be a bit, I don't know, a bit up himself. And other times you think, no, I agree with him. What's he really like? Unbelievably intelligent. Oh, is he? I mean, super, super intelligent. Lovely guy. Lovely right. guy. Very, very, very um, driven, very knowledgeable. Um but no, I've, I've, I've got a lot of, he just goes, oh, it's Andy the Builder. We, we have a bit of a joke. But <laughs> so I, I was doing a talk, really, how to find tradespeople, how to work with them, um, how to keep the relationship going. What do you do if you have a problem? And, and I was coming off stage, taking all the mic off. You've got five minutes to get a coffee and get onto the next stage. And suddenly I think there's 40 people deep that want to talk to me. And what it was, was husband and wife. The wife's in tears. The husband's holding a set of drawings that he spent 10 grand on. They couldn't afford it. The layout didn't work. It's not what they asked for. And then I suddenly thought, hang on, there's a gap here. Getting a decent builder in early doors, because actually we build it with our hands, not computers. We can advise. And then I got to the stage where I could sit and ask a set of questions over two or three hours and they design their own house. Right. Not by so I sketch it out and say, this is the rough layout that I understand. And they're like, oh my God, wow, how do you do that? And I said, no, I haven't done it. You've just designed it by answering questions. Yeah. So we've got one that started on Monday last week in Beaconsfield. Um, and he's adding about 6,000 square foot. And I was found out, I didn't find out. I looked, I was talking to him since October 19. And it's all about get, what do you want? How do you want to live? And I joke, you know, some people like an open plan space to sit around with the kids and have a family environment. Some people want the kids in a dungeon underground, so we'll build that for you. <laughs> Everyone lives differently. And it's understanding that we are all different. And there's no point in putting, you know, a fancy wine cellar in if the bloke doesn't drink. You know, yeah. the architects are good, but they don't listen to the client enough. They're very reliant on what the computer spits out. And if you're starting off on your own, copy-paste the one you did down the road, even though it might be, Totally different people. It is funny you should say that. When I moved to Nottingham, because I've, you know, with radio moved around a lot. When I moved to Nottingham, the first thing you got to do is you got to find a, a rental to live in. 
So instead of going to the estate agents and being, you know, taken around in an estate agent's filthy car to a load of different flats that you're supposed to see, I said, look, there are a load of like new build developments of flats. Why don't we talk to the developers who are selling them, asking them if someone has bought one recently that wants to rent it? Because a lot of people were buying to let back then. And, and we might get in before the estate agents get a look at them. We can deal directly with the landlord and whatever. So we got this fantastic flat, a lot cheaper. And it had this, it was on top of a hill and it had this view of, you look down at the city of Nottingham and hot air balloons had go past. It was up by a reservoir and everything. It was fantastic. And when they'd eventually sold all the flats in the block, because we were one of the first in, when they'd sold them all, they had this big like get together in one of the flats. And it was like, it was like to invite all the residents of this new you know, block of flats. And we were in the so-called penthouse or anyway, but in, in this place. And the architect was there. And I said, oh, I said, how many of these? I got talking to him. I said, how many of these have you done? And he'd done loads of them. And I said, oh, I said, is this what you usually do? Do you usually come and meet the people who are in them? Because I've got a few ideas for you, seeing as I've been living in it for a bit. You know, there's a few like rooms with weird angles and space yeah. you can't do anything with you know and there was a few issues you know in the design i said do you he says no he said you're the first person i've ever talked to that lives in one of the things i design my mind went what and it was not a regular thing for an architect to, no. to to they just design it on paper and let it look nice or they've got some idea out as italy or something and they go and do it but they don't actually talk to the people who have to live in the places which seems mad to me so. It's reliant on computers. It's it's you know it. Everyone's different and wants to live differently, and that's why the the sort of main main extensions and stuff that people do, you know, you don't need to do something that the neighbours are doing because they might be retired. And if yeah. you're let's say early thirties with a young family, you're going to live very differently. And I mm. you know I, I'll say it again: a good builder in early is going to say, "Well, listen, we can do that, but it's a lot cheaper." To, to look at this way, for example, oh, didn't know we could do that. Yeah, we know what it costs. And this is, I always joke with people that all the guys that work with me over the years, they've got no idea, and I'm with them all day, every day, what I pay for my materials. Because you have a rep from your suppliers that you set terms up with, and that's what it is. And it always makes me laugh that an architect or a QS can say, right, we'll price this job for you. They would not have a clue what I pay for a length of 4 by 2 or a bag of soft sand or a sheet of plasterboard or what I pay my men. Yeah. Do architects... You know, can be on 90 quid a day, but they're on 350 now. Do the, do the QSs and architects know that? No chance. And do the, the architects with their design ideas, do they end up costing the customer money unnecessarily? Whereas something cheaper would do the job just as well than something that looks, you know, really fancy. Because customers don't understand drawings. I struggle with them. Right. So I looked at a, a flat roof extension, kitchen extension a few years ago, looked at it, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, fair enough. Gave them a very rough price before I went back and, and they went, why is that so expensive? I said, you've got 17 grand's worth of lead work on your flat roof to make it look nice. They went, pardon? I said, look, that's that detail there. And it was a new architect that had just set up and wanted something for his portfolio. And I said, unless you're going to sit at the end of the garden and stare up at your flat roof, <laughs> it's actually a bit of a waste of time. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of rubbish in there. Like we we've had a few issues over the years with 
they do a lot of cornerless bifolds so you don't have a post. Right. And a lot of structural engineers say, oh, you can't do that. Of course you can. You just put a cantilevered steel in. I did one 10 years ago, one of the first ones to do it. And I think the big difference is we put it in with our hands. Yeah. And the other thing, you look at an architect's set of drawings, some of them, obviously not all of them, you're on an existing Victorian house, nine-inch solid wall. And as we all know, new extensions have a cavity. So clues there, it's going to be wider. So you can have a step in the wall from nine inch to cavity. Yeah. But on all drawings, it's perfectly straight. And then the builder's <laughs> got to talk to the customer and say, right, what do you want us to do with this step? But it's not on the drawings. Yeah. Well, I can't get a cavity in there if you want it flush. So, <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I think we're under underestimated. I think decent builders are worth their weight in gold, personally. Yeah. And you've got to remember, the people who built the foundations of this country literally built the foundations of this country. Build It With Andy Stevens is at number six this week on the Pod 20. Five, Conan O'Brien needs a friend. After 25 years at the late night desk, Conan has never made a real and lasting friendship with any of his celebrity guests. So, he started a podcast to fix that. Number four, Suspect. An apartment complex hosts a big Halloween party with themed rooms and costumed partygoers. By the end of the night, one of the party's hosts is murdered, and the partygoers are the main suspects. Number three, The Dropout. The podcast about the ongoing trial of Elizabeth Holmes. How did the world's youngest self-made female billionaire lose it all in the blink of an eye? Number two, Crime Junkie. If you can never get enough true crime, congratulations, you've found your people. And at number one, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's Parenting Hell. Yes. I did a great sex position joke. That's, I think it's a bit hack, the whole funny wording. Go, oh, that sounds like a sex position. Oh, it sounds oh, yeah, like yeah. a porn star name. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I was doing an awards, and up for one of the awards was Brunel Carriage. Wait, Brunel Carriage sounds like a sex move, and I, I think that's a good one. Yeah. Sometimes people jump to that joke too quickly, but, um, yeah. but I think a Brunel Carriage. <laughs> I think also, Rob, yeah. when you're doing an awards, all kind of creative questioning is off anything that can get you through the night i did the british insurance awards the other week and this i I was really happy with this josh i said and now we come to british insurance personality of the year no nominees i'm afraid hopefully next year that's a bit of fun isn't it oh lovely no personality in insurance you're not you didn't didn't like that you didn't seem like that that much did you check a text halfway through that i I didn't check a text i deserve more no, I was, I was just, to be honest with you, Rob, yeah. I was just thinking about the, I just disappeared into a dark kind of um, hole of thinking about doing those award ceremonies. Yeah, well, don't, don't think about that now. I, no. I quite enjoy I'm them. I think they're on post-lockdown. You haven't done a, 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 an in-person award ceremony? I haven't done an in-person award ceremony since one where we weren't allowed to touch the people, but the drunk people winning awards were not playing ball oh but just before lockdown yeah before well, no, lockdown. i've done quite a few but i think um i think i don't think romesh i don't think romesh does many and i am happy to gobble them up 
Yeah. I'm like a Pac-Man. Give me a hotel function room with some, you know, normally fat white blokes in suits, and I'll dish out some awards. Oh, That's... there's a there's a lot of white there's a lot of white middle aged baldies there, isn't there? There's well, a sixty year old white man. <laughs> All the CEOs, isn't it? They're yeah. big bellies. Only just got back in their suits after lockdown. Good luck yeah. to them. Sweating um... profusely as they came to collect their awards <laughs> after having chicken supreme the full time that week. <laughs> Um, Josh, what would you think the Brunel carriage would be as a sex move off the top well, of your carriage head? Is it, well, it I suppose held and suspended. It, it, yeah, enclosed, held and suspended. And Brunel was obviously the inventor of the suspension bridge. So I think um, you're going at it so hard. There's steam coming out your ass, <laughs> like like in the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and you're also wearing a top hat. Yeah, it's quite an intense move, but it really pays off. It, it's sort of it, it's sort of inspired by the opening ceremony of the Olympics in 2012. Yeah, do send in your illustrations of what you imagine it is. Yeah, if um, you, if, if you are going to have a little go at the Brunel carriage tonight, let us know. Let us know. You don't film on. it and send it in. That is not the kind of thing <laughs> no. we're allowed to ask for. No, no, we're we'll not doing it on Instagram, and the whole podcast will be over. I think you're right, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's lockdown parenting hell. Number one this week on the pod 20. And that's it for episode 74. Thanks to this week's guest pod stars, Owen Ralph, Lee Salisbury, Andy Stevens, Rob Beckett and Josh Whittacombe. Next week, my guests include Don Chambers from In Radio. Don, I know that you've been involved in community radio. I started in community radio in Sydney, Australia. It was a station called 2 R, and you had to bring your own records. Right. It turned out that the only people who had the time to put into community radio in the early 90s were either unemployed or retired. So the format was basically jazz or heavy metal. <laughs> and it was not put together well at all as a, as a, what was it? I have no experience of British community radio. I came here to, to, to work in commercial radio. Yeah. What I probably at about the same time, this is the late nineties, like 97. That was probably about the time when community radio was probably very, very, the very beginnings of it in Britain. Did it start off knowing what it was doing or was it all heavy metal and jazz and retired and unemployed? It was certainly heavy metal where I was concerned. <laughs> uh, but, um, I, but, but, you know, I used to go around the wards in hospital and they'd say, oh, dearie, play us a nice bit of Frank Sinatra. I like a bit of nice Frank, you know, and all this. And I'd go and say, saying, this is a, a request. I'm afraid we're out of Frank Sinatra and here's Lemmy from Motorhead. But uh, but that that was because I rather selfishly wanted to be a rock jock and, and replace Tommy Vance. Um, yeah. But uh, who could replace Tommy Vance? Well, that was a ridiculous idea. TV and, on the uh, radio. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and interestingly, I was talking to uh, John Bissett, who, who who's sort of the equivalent of, of what I do at the CMA over in Australia, the Australian Broadcasters Association, Community Broadcasters Association, and um, uh, and and we were very much having this sort of compare and contrast about the different histories. And, uh, and in fact, he's invited me out there to speak at their conference, which I'm really, really looking forward to do, uh, hopefully sufficiently far away in time for us to be making kind of uh, reasonably well calculated traveling, unlike the holiday makers of this summer. Um, community radio in this country has existed in one form or another for a long time, as has community TV. But as a licensed model that's come out of Ofcom, it was uh, Tessa Jowell's DCMS uh, that um, – that really got this going and uh, the community media association which used to be the community radio association lobbied for it and the whole thing culminated in the broadcasting act of 2003 
that in order behind that, there were what they call the access pilots. So a number of stations were given a license, a temporary license to broadcast and prove their worth. And many of those are, are, are still going. Um, and then, but I, what I think no one calculated on is the immense levels of success. And if numbers are a measure of success, I think they are a good measure. No one could have possibly dreamt in those days that um, that there would be over 300 licenses broadcasting. And of course, that's only on FM. There's a number of others coming of, with, the, with the rolling out of small-scale DAB. So uh, community radio um, is, is it, it came from, um, I think, an interest in, an increased interest in community life. And the radio is, is an extension of community life. Well, especially as local commercial radio is disappearing very fast. Well, one's come to replace the other. What's fascinating about commercial radio is it started out as a local offering, independent local radio, uh, ILRs, and it was independent from the BBC. People sort of forget about that now. And uh, BBC started local radio in the late 60s, but very much growing in the period where I was starting, you know, student and starting to get interested in radio in the uh, in the 80s, uh, as was commercial radio. In fact, as a, as a decision to go into radio, which for me was from about 1990, I think, it was, seemed a sensible idea. It seemed to be a growth industry. It was the reason why I came to the UK. I was, I was in Australia and I'd worked for three different commercial radio stations. That, you know, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was at nights just north of Sydney on the New South Wales Central Coast, a station called 2GO out of Gosford. And I wanted to get off nighttime. I was on seven till midnight, uh, Monday through Friday. And uh, I wanted to get off nighttime and get back into a daytime shift because I'd done breakfast at the other two commercial radio stations. But once you get to the bigger stations, they really weren't taking me seriously enough. So, because, you know, I didn't sound very Australian. And uh, so then I heard from a friend, an Australian who'd worked at Ram FM in Derby, and he said, what are you doing there? It's growing here. It's like these new stations go on the air almost every week. And that was, that was the reason in 97, while I made the movie, I had a very, very fast growth local commercial radio in Britain. It's mostly yeah. all gone now, but it was very, very fast. Well, it was still quite experimentational. I mean, I, I, I've got nothing wrong with, uh, no problem with formatted commercial radio. It's not for me because I like to, you know, I, I hope because you're because you're talented. Exactly. The format is an excuse. If you want to hire someone who's got nothing to say, then you just give yeah. them a format clock and you say you talk there, you say the station ID there, you mention the contest here, you promote the breakfast show here, and then you're back to the top of the hour again. Well, you know, any anybody can do that, and it works well if you can't afford talent, you know. And so yeah. that's what it is. The funny thing is, though, that format clock, which is something that is, you know, the program director's thing, or now they call themselves a content director, a format clock does not direct programming or talent or content. It's more for distribution. Mm. It is It is how you're going to distribute the music there, the news there, the ads there. And they still think that program directors are actually creative people, and they're not. They're in the distribution game. They're not actually in any anything creative at all they just know how to police distribution and, and there's, a, there's a place in in the marketplace for this kind of radio for me yeah. uh, you know i was lucky in the background in, in, in the late 90s I, I very much sort of 
found those stations that were trying to be a bit different. I worked for Viva 963, which was uh, the country's, I think, first female radio station run by Chris Burns, who now uh, runs uh, BBC Local BBC Radio. BBC Local, and, she does, yeah. And uh, and I loved that. I mean, that was great. They, they had me on the graveyard, but uh, but I loved being up all night just talking about this marvellous music. And... Um, and that, of course, uh, gave way to Liberty Radio, Liberty 963. And that was really, you know, that hit the mood of, of the arrival of Blair and Cool Britannia, hit those times spot on. And, uh, and people were just about hanging on to medium wave. And, uh, and, and, and so they were, they were good times. But I think community radio suited me because I really loved community life. And, and that just sounds like a thing people say, but... You know, it sounds me, like I a talk, slogan, yeah, Don. Yeah. Well, you know, if I, I talk about the conspiracy to spend as much time in the pub. Well, that wasn't just because I liked beer, which I did, but it was about it was about the sort of leveling that comes with pubs, which could have been in churches actually as well. Yeah. And um, and for me, community radio, oh, communities start in the in the pub, and I think radios, um, radio stations come from that. You know, someone I was up in the north on one of my tours and. A young student asked me uh, some really brilliant questions, actually. And uh, one of the things was, um, would, uh, what does community mean to you? And I didn't, you know, when you're interviewed, you don't get a chance to think about the answer. Just something comes out. You hope it's not going <laughs> to offend or horror people. And, and I said, well, uh, I was in this pub in Allsford where I come from. And, uh, and my mate Rick came in and he, he said his motorbike had been stolen. And um, and word went out in the pubs, and three days later, the bike turned back up on his forecourt with a nice buffed-up, polished petrol tank, which had been filled up for the occasion. And I went, "That's community." <laughs> but it's yeah. that. Yeah. It's that. You know, I'm not trying to create a picture of sort of cray twin type fantasy, but it's that idea of of support um, that the family unit is, is the most socially cohesive force in the country in yeah. my view. And that's yeah. why when it goes wrong, it can be incredibly tragic. But I think community life is about, it is about mates, but it's about, there's, and we've seen this so much in COVID when we've all been under pressure, that um, the, the, the community life keeps you connected and how important is that? You know, particularly as we've had to stay in our homes for large slices of what, you know, isolate. And so feeling connected to your fellow people across the area that you live in or it might be communities of interest. Uh, yeah, you know, people, tribes, yeah. Exactly, that, that uh, bring people together because of an, of an interest. You know, an example in radio of that would be Gadio, for instance. Yeah. Um, or uh, you've got uh, various uh, Islamic-type stations, and, um, and so they're serving communities of interest. Most community radio stations are serving communities of sort of geographic uh, identity. Um, but, but it, you know, it, it, it's grown... Uh, I think hugely partly because of that interest in community life has, has really been redefined. And, people, and David Cameron's was sort of quite slated for the idea of the big society. But I think he was just articulating something that was happening and needed to, to happen. We don't talk about the big society, but the ethos of it, I think, is happening. Certainly where I live, you know, communities have taken charge. They're, they're less involved with the local authority. They're less involved. Local authorities are less involved with education. You know, and every solution produces a whole range of new challenges. But um, I can really see that the growth of community radio has been part of a, a growth of 
of community life in the UK. But as a radio uh, professional yourself, you've absolutely rightly identified that the opportunity has been there because the marketplace has shifted in. There's great uh, regional commercial offerings. There's great national uh, commercial and BBC offerings. But I think there's still a real appetite and a need for locally generated audio. And and I think community radio in parts with you can't really say it's not in the BBC, you know roughly what you're gonna get for a local radio station, you know, broadly speaking, what you can expect. Community radio have no idea. You can go into an area and, and listen to one thing, go into another area and listen to something completely different. And that and that might be a bit rubbish, or it might be exceptional quality, or it might be that you're listening to something that you're never gonna hear on any other radio station. And I think, you know, that is that is one of the great values of what we do is it is not homogenized. You know, in, in under current broadcasting regulation managed by Ofcom, not more than one business can own a community license. Yeah, well, that certainly helps out Ofcom and, and helps justify their huge salaries and the massive building they inhabit on the banks of the Thames. But don't let me get started on Ofcom. Don Chambers from In Radio is one of my guests next week on the Pod 20. In the meantime, you can watch extended video chats with my guests on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. And what will happen on the podcast radio chart next week? Will Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe stay at the top? Will your favourite podcast make it to number one? Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart. Make a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.